بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما رسالة الشريف اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد uh, For those listening at home at this moment in time this is probably the coolest place to be um, in both ways so being in the masjid is cool anyway especially on a Tuesday after Asr Salah where we discuss the seerah of the Prophet every Tuesday coolest place to be on a Tuesday evening and literally it is the coolest place over the last two days um, I've not been to any place that is cooler than this so anybody that's feeling the heat uh, even if you wanted to come and have a nap um, the best, best place to be is Masjid Al-Fala right now uh, it's very very nice and cool so Alhamdulillah here we are we continue with our series on Islam's greatest personalities this is session number 61 and we are now discussing the seerah and the biography of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and this is part 10 and today we're going to be discussing specifically the reconstruction of the Kaaba so during the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's lifetime this is prior to prophethood remember last week we had the entire session dedicated to his first marriage and that was to Khadija radiallahu anha he was at that time how old 25 and he married a lady who was 40 who had been married twice before and she even had children with her previous husbands as well uh, the first one passed away the second one died and then he was her third husband so his first marriage when he was 25 years old was to this lady who was a very noble woman and um, she had the title of being uh, Tahira, meaning the pure woman or the chaste woman, even in the days of Jahiliyyah as well. So, after this incident of the marriage, uh, some years later, the, there's an important incident that takes place, uh, and that involves the reconstruction of the Kaaba. So, we're gonna, that's all we're going to be speaking about the Kaaba itself. And I think it's an, a very opportune time as we've just had the Hajj. Um, many people are still there, some people have returned um, and we are still in Dhul Hijjah so it kind of um, connects really well. So we know that the most important and the most honorable place of worship in the whole world without a doubt is the Kaaba, the house of Allah. There's no doubt. There are many masjids in the world, many places of worship. Um, but we know without a doubt the most greatest and the most honorable place is in Mecca, the Kaaba, the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has afforded the Kaaba such an honor that over time, regardless what incidents and events have taken place, many things have happened. Uh, the significance and the importance of that place has remained intact. No matter what has happened there, it has not had any impact on the significance of the Kaaba. So many things have happened. Just speak about 
the time of the pagan Arabs. They had 360 idols around the Kaaba. That didn't take away from the significance of the Kaaba. The Kaaba remained the Kaaba. It remained significant. Even at the time when he wasn't there, even when he wasn't there, it was still significant, uh, as we see in the life of Ibrahim salam. And as we know that the Kaaba is now the Qibla of all of the Muslims, and there is nothing, no building, no structure that can vie with the Kaaba. The Kaaba is always going to be number one for every Muslim. Allah says in the Quran, Inna awwala baytin nas The first house that was built for the worship of Allah, for the sake of mankind, for Allah's worship in, in this world was the Kaaba. And it is a source of guidance for the whole of mankind. So this is Quran speaking about the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the first and being the greatest place of worship. Now, before we go into the specific construction that took place during the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's getting a bit too cold now. How many times was the Kaaba built over history? Built and rebuilt over history. So let's, let's go over this first of all to understand. So how many times was the Kaaba built? So we have to go all the way back. Okay, back in time. Right to the beginning. So the first narrations we find, right, we're gonna scrutinize all of the narrations, all of the sources we have in history to try and come up with this. So we find the narration in the Sunan of Imam al-Bayhiqi that Adam alayhi salam uh, was returning from Hajj. And we know that all of the prophets made the Hajj. Even Adam alayhi salam, narration mentioned, walking, he made many, many Hajj in his lifetime. So he's returning from the Hajj to wherever he was going to. And en route, he meets the angels. So the angels ask him, now, where are you coming from? So he says, I've just been for Hajj. I've come from the Kaaba. I've just been for Hajj. The angels responded, that before you even came into this world, we have visited that house already. We have visited that house before you. Uh, so this is one narration based on which many scholars say that the first to build the Kaaba were the angels. According to many scholars, based on this particular narration, many of them say that the first to build the actual Kaaba were the angels. Allah instructed the angels, the Malaika, to build the Kaaba. That's one narration. Who was the second to build the Kaaba? Or it could be first. According to many, this would be the first. Yes, Saleh. Very good, mashallah. A, a special point for you. Prophet Adam alayhi salam was, according to those who believe the angels built it first, they say second to build the Kaaba was Adam alayhi salam. And those who don't accept the first narration, uh, like Hafiz ibn Hajar al-Asqalani and others, they say that the first to build the Kaaba was Prophet Adam alayhi salam. So that is the first construction and the building of the Kaaba. So number one or number two, depends how you want to look at it. Who's the next? So this is going to be either number two or number three now. Who was after Adam alayhi salam? Go on. Before Ibrahim alayhi salam. Before Nuh alayhi salam. Yeah. Musa alayhi salam comes afterwards. Long time afterwards. So this is after Prophet Adam alayhi salam, but before Nuh. 
gone. Even Ibrahim comes after Nuh Well done though, amazing effort you are making, mashallah. Well done for trying. Who's the son of Adam salam, who's also a prophet? Uh, Habil and Qabil were sons but not prophets. Chief, okay, not a common name, not a common name, but he, we know uh, from the scriptures that he was a prophet and a son of Adam salam, Prophet Sheath salam. So he was the second to build the Kaaba. So the first to build was Adam salam. The subsequent buildings are either reconstructions, well, they are all reconstructions, so they're not building from scratch. So the first build was done by Prophet Adam salam. Remember, why are we here in this world? What's the purpose? Yep. To worship, mashallah. Kalams just accepted Islam like a, a week ago, was it? A couple of or a couple of days ago, right? And he's man, uh, managed to answer uh, a, a question which we were able to answer. So well done for that. Um, so we've been created for worship. That's our purpose of being in this world. So when Allah created the first man, Prophet Adam alayhi salam, one of the first things that he was instructed to do was build the Kaaba, because that is the center and the focal point of worship. Uh, are you following? So his whole existence and then his children that were to come was to worship God, was to worship Allah. So he was instructed to build the Kaaba. So the Kaaba existed from that time and doesn't come later on uh, because the worship was there from day one. So we've got Prophet Adam salam, then Prophet Sheath salam, and then we have, go on. And now it's the ones you said before. Very good. Ibrahim and who was his son? Very good. So we all know this story. Very famous story. When Ibrahim and Ismail were raising the foundations of the Kaaba and the dua they were making, So that we are well aware of. So after Sheath alayhi salam, it was Ibrahim and Ismail alayhi salam who rebuilt the Kaaba. After Ibrahim and Ismail alayhi salam, it was the uh, Amalkites, the Amalika, who did a reconstruction of the Kaaba. And following the Amalkites, the Amalika, it was the Banu Jurhum tribe. You know, Banu Jurhum were the people who came and settled in Makkatul Mukarrama, and they were the in-laws of Prophet Ismail alayhi salam, from whom he developed the Arabic language as well. So now you've got Prophet Adam salam, then Prophet Sheath alayhi salam, then Ibrahim and Ismail salam, then the Amalkites, and then you've got Banu Jurhum. After Banu Jurhum, you have Qusay bin Kilab. Is that name familiar? Yeah? Is Qusay bin Kilab familiar? Yeah? Very good, mashallah. Ancestor of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. How many are we going up? How many generations are we going up? Is that right? Who's, who, who, who's going to count for us? From there, one of the youngsters memorized it last time. Who was it? Do you remember? Where does Qusay bin Kilab? Do you remember who Qusay bin Kilab is? Who was Qusay bin Kilab? Qusay bin Kilab, remember the, 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 the one whose father passed away and he went to live in Syria with his mother. And then people taunted him and said, what are you doing here? Go back to your own country. 
And then he asked his mom, why are people saying this to me? And she said, yeah, your dad was from Makkah. And you've got a very important role there. And your father had a significant role. Um, I'm from Syria, but you're, you are originally from there. So he, he insisted I want to go back. So then he went back and he found out things that were going on in Makkatul Mukarramah. And he chose to get married to the daughter of one of the leaders of Makkah at the time. It was a strategic plan so that then he could become one of the leaders of Makkah. And that, that's what happened. He became one of the leaders of Makkatul Mukarramah and he rebuilt the Kaaba as well. So one of the ancestors of the Prophet Qusayt bin Kilab. And then number eight is the construction that happened during the lifetime of the Prophet which we'll be speaking about today insha'Allah in detail. So this reconstruction of the Kaaba takes place after the marriage to Khadija and according to some scholars five years prior to prophethood. So how old is he at this time? Hmm? 35. Okay, because prophethood he received at the age of 40. So he's 35 um, at this time. Now, although the Quraysh, they were idolaters. They believed in idols. So they believed in Allah, but they had an idol. Many, many, many idols. So although they were idolaters, but they knew that the Kaaba was a very honorable place. They honored the Kaaba. They had extreme love and attachment to the Kaaba. Also, it, was, it wasn't just a spiritual or a religious connection. Economically, they knew that their livelihood depended on the Kaaba. People were only coming to this city. Why? Because of the sanctity of the Kaaba. And their livelihood depended on this. They could sell to people that would come. And Allah speaks about this. Allah speaks about this in the Quran. Uh, where, and there are other verses in the Quran as well, um, where the, the Kaaba is such where it's attached to people's livelihood as well, because it's a place where people come and go. And this is why when the people would go for Hajj, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them that you're going for Hajj, it's not going to be just a spiritual benefit for you. It's going to be a, an economic benefit as well, because people would go for Hajj. Now their Hajj journey would, would take maybe six months sometimes, three months to go there. And then they wouldn't, you're not just going to go after all the months, you're not just going to stay there for a week and two weeks and come back. You'd stay there for a good amount of time and then you would come back. So when you would come back, what you would en route, you would take with you your stock, your trade, whatever you specialized in, you would take them goods because people are going to come there from all over the world. And the Quran actually endorses this practice so that when you go for Hajj, you come back spiritually boosted and economically boosted as well. So you've made some money as well at the same time and you've completed your hajj and you've come back forgiven from your sins as well. Um, so the Quraysh, they knew that their livelihood depended on the Kaaba and they had a lot of respect um, and they earned a lot of um, honor because of the Kaaba. Why? Because all of the other Arab tribes, they would respect and look up to the people of Mecca. Why? Because they were the custodians of the Kaaba. So they knew that the Kaaba is special and they have to afford it a very special place in their hearts. Now, the question is, why was the Kaaba being rebuilt? Why would you need to build something? If something's not broken, you don't need to fix it. So why was it being rebuilt? Simple. At that time, the entire structure of the Kaaba had become quite old. Um, and when the bricks were laid by Husayn bin Kilab at that time, there was no cement in between. There was no mortar in between. It was just stone upon stone, rocks upon rocks that were laid. 
And after time, what happens is bits start corroding away, um, the structure became weak, and at that time, the door, um, because it was lower onto the ground, it, it, it was actually touching the earth, touching the ground. And um, at that time, also another issue which a lot of people probably didn't, don't know, is the Kaaba was roofless. They never used to have a roof, it was open. So when it would rain, all the rain would go inside. So there was no roof on the Kaaba. It wasn't very high as well. The door of the Kaaba would be, would be touching the ground. And it had become very, very weak in, 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 in its structure. And although the Arabs had built um, a, a dam to contain water at the time of floods, but despite that, the water would overflow and it would come in Makkah Zavali, as you know, um, and it would come and it would all gather by the Kaaba. And there would be water inside, there would be water all around it, um, which caused damage, it caused cracks. Um, and, and the wall of the Kaaba wasn't that high as well. So it was just above an average person's height. Um, just to give you an idea. So not that high. The, 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 so the, the height of the Kaaba wasn't so high. There was no roof to it. The door, the entrance door was touching the ground. There were many, many cracks. It had become old. It needed some, um, you know, it, it needed some care. That was one reason. Another reason we learned from the Hadith of why they wanted to rebuild the Kaaba at this time was to secure the treasure of the Kaaba. Now, what do you mean by this treasure of the Kaaba? When people would come for Hajj, they would give some gifts towards the Kaaba. They would give donations. They would give um, valuable things like gold, for example. And this would be a gift towards the Kaaba. And that would be placed inside the Kaaba. And we've already spoken about the, the golden deer. Uh, when we spoke about Zamzam, do you remember? When they unearthed the well of Zamzam and they came across the golden deer, um, there were two golden de deers that were placed inside the Kaaba. So they wanted to protect the Kaaba and its relics and its valuable treasure from theft. At this moment in time, the way it was, anybody could kind of come and break in and, and steal everything. So they wanted to safeguard it from theft. Um, the golden deer had already been stolen uh, by uh, somebody called Duwaik, and he was a slave of Banu Khuza'a. Uh, and um, when he was caught, the Quraysh got together and they actually chopped off one of his hands for carrying out. And this was something that was done in, the, in pagan Arabia um, for doing this. And later it was revealed that there was a person called Harith and he was the main instigator. He's the one who planned this heist, shall we call it, of stealing from inside the Kaaba. Um, and then he was banished from Mecca for 10 years. So due to all of these reasons, one is to uh, protect it from just the wear and tear and also to safeguard the treasure, the Quraysh decided to rebuild the Kaaba. What were they going to do? They were going to make the walls much higher. They were going to add a roof to it. Um, they were going to raise the door. It was too close to the ground and they were going to put a lock onto it so that they could control who comes in, who goes out. At the moment, there's no lock. Anybody can go in. Anyone can do anything. So these were the plans that they had. Um, the maternal uncle of the Prophet Wasallam's father, who was his father? Abdullah. So his maternal uncle, uh, his mom's brother, okay? His name is Abu Wahab bin Amr Makhzumi. Abu Wahab bin Amr Makhzumi. He went towards the Kaaba and like, he kind of pulled out a stone. And um, 
pulled out a stone into his hand. Like, he was falling to bits, he was crumbling. So he pulled out a stone and he was about, he was about to like show the people, he goes, look, look, the Kaaba's like falling to pieces. When he pulled it out, it kind of bounced back into its place from his hand. Uh, so Abu Wahab went to the Quraysh and he spoke to them. And he said, oh, tribesmen of Quraysh, this house is a holy house. If you're really intending to reconstruct and rebuild this, then only spend from your legitimate and halal cash that you have, halal income that you have, because this is the house of Allah. Do not spend any money on it, which you have earned through an act of lewdness, an act of immorality or, or usury or by force. So only use that money which you consider to be legit uh, and earn through a good source, a halal source. Don't use anything that was uh, that you could say was contaminated and stolen wealth, wealth that has been usurped from somebody. Um, because he saw, he saw that look, he went to the Kaaba, he pulled the stone out and he went back to its place and he thought, right, this is definitely a divine place and we must deal with it in a very particular way. A lot of these narrations are taken by a scholar by the name of Al-Azraqi. Al-Azraqi has a book called Akhbar Makkah, the news of Makkah. So he's got a lot of history when it comes to Makkah itself. You find a lot of history taken from Al-Azraqi, which is very um, good for the seerah as well. So he says that when the Quraysh, they collected all of the materials, they wanted to get together uh, before they built, before, let's get everything together. So they got together rocks, they got together some wood, they got together some um, uh, cloth, and then they thought, right, it's time now to start pulling down the Kaaba. Let's pull it down and we can start rebuilding. So when they try, when they approach the Kaaba to pull one of the walls down, so let's start from one side, let's pull the wall down. When they approach the Kaaba to pull one of the walls down, a huge serpent came out from inside the Kaaba. And this serpent used to live inside the Kaaba. So inside the Kaaba, there was a well. Um, so they had a well inside the Kaaba. In this well, they would store a lot of the wealth. And this serpent actually lived inside this well. So when the people went towards the Kaaba with the intention of tearing it down, the serpent comes out of the well and it comes out and faces the people. And with the intention to stop them so, so that people don't go and tear the Kaaba down. Um, so this is, so upon seeing this, the Quraysh were very frightened. Anybody would be. So imagine being there and seeing something like that happen. So the Quraysh were really frightened and they all gathered by Maqam Ibrahim. And at that time, one of the leaders of the Quraysh was a man called Walid bin Mughira. Walid bin Mughira, he said to the people, the old people of Quraysh, do you want to pull the Kaaba down with a good intention? Are you doing this with a good intention? And the people said, yes, of course. We don't have any evil intention. We don't want to destroy it. And um, uh, Mughira, uh, Walid bin Mughira, he said to the people, well, if that is your intention, Allah will never waste anybody who has a good intention. Anybody proceeding to this house, um, and if you're going to use clean money, he advised them as well, use clean money for it, for the rebuilding. Allah will not waste you. Allah will assist you and nothing will happen to you. Don't worry. So we're going to go into now the process of the reconstruction of the Kaaba by the Quraysh. So whilst they were, they were discussing this amongst themselves, Walid bin Mughira speaking to them, advising them. Whilst they're speaking about the rebuilding of the Kaaba, 
they heard some news. Now you remember in those days, news would take time to reach. So they had just received some news that a Roman cargo ship had crushed at the, uh, a port of, um, it's a place called Shu'iba by the south of Jeddah. So let, let's call it Jeddah. So in, as you know, Jeddah is a coastal city um, and the, uh, this Roman ship, massive ship was traveling and it crashed there um, and it was abandoned. They couldn't move it. They couldn't take the stuff in there. Um, and this is in the south of Jeddah. Now, what was it carrying? It was carrying a lot of materials, specifically precious wood. So in Abyssinia, Ethiopia, Al-Habasha, they wanted to build this huge church. Now for that, for the construction of this church, they were carrying precious wood, teak wood. And um, that, that's what this cargo ship was carrying. Now, once the people of Mecca found out that this ship has been abandoned, there's a lot of precious wood. They needed really good quality wood as well. Um, they sent a delegation to the people of the ship. Uh, it was led by Walid bin Mughira, who was one of the leaders of the Quraysh at the time. And he uh, came to these people and said, we want to buy that wood of you. This wood we want to buy, it's going to come in use. We're about to re rebuild the Kaaba. And the people actually agreed, they were Christians, they agreed to sell the wood on one condition. They said, look, we want, our ship is abandoned now. We can't take any of our merchandise, any of our stock, anywhere. We want, we will sell this to you if you agree to take all our stock with you and then bring it in the next time you go to trade in Syria, you bring it with you over there. You carry our merchandise for us and then we'll basically take it off you there. And the people of Mecca agreed. They said, that's fine. Sell us this wood and we agree to carry your stock as well. And the people of Mecca actually offered them, uh, these Christians, that you can come to Mecca and we will allow you to sell your merchandise to our people tax-free. So they used to apply a tax on people coming, selling from outside. No tax on you whatsoever because you've done us a favor. This is wood that we really need. Uh, uh, and we're carrying out this project, Kaaba building project. Uh, and this was agreed uh, by the people. How old was the Prophet wasallam at this time? So Ibn Ishaq says the Prophet wasallam was 35 years old at the time. According to Imam Al-Bayhiqi and Imam Ibn Kathir rahmatullah this incident took place 15 years before prophethood, which would mean he was how old? Hmm? 15 years before, so it would be 25. Um, but that's a bit too early because we've just had the marriage of Khadija. Um, so the more popular opinion is it was five years before prophethood at the age of 35. The Prophet also participated in the rebuilding of the Kaaba. Um, he himself carried stones. He actually went to Ajiyad. Ajiyad is there now. It's an area everybody, anybody who's been to Mecca will know where Ajiyad is. Um, it's right in front of where you see the clock tower basically now. Okay, just going up there, that whole area is known as Ajiyad. Um, if you were to go carry on through that way. So the Prophet ﷺ himself would go to Ajiyad, he would pick up these stones and he would carry them uh, by the Kaaba. There is a narration reported by Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim, both of them authentic narration 
the Prophet ﷺ, remember this is prior to Prophet, he's not Prophet yet. Okay, he becomes a Prophet at the age of 40. But remember, Prophets were protected even prior to them becoming Prophets. They were innocent before Prophethood as well. So he is now with his uncle Abbas uh, anhu, and they were carrying these stones from Ajiyad all the way to where the Kaaba is to rebuild it. And as they are carrying these stones, now to carry when you when you when you're doing when you're carrying things, at that time uh, their normal clothing was how did they dress? How did they dress? How did the Prophet dress even after Prophethood as well? What was their dress code? Hmm? Yeah, so we had we have lungi. In Arabic, it's called izar. I know we call izar trousers, okay, but in Arabic, the word for the loincloth, which is called in English, is called izar. Uh, in our languages, we call it lungi. And in simple terms, we just call it a, a, a cloth. It's a piece of cloth which you tie around, okay, and then you just tie it. And that was their normal dress. That is what the Prophet wore. On top, you would have another piece of cloth. So a piece of cloth for the top and a piece of cloth for the bottom. Yes, now and again, he wore a qamis, which is a bit more like a jubba, what a lot of us are wearing now. Uh, but most of the time, it was a lower garment, like a lungi, and a, an upper garment, a cloth at the top, a cloth at the bottom tied. So when you're wearing this kind of clothing and you want to carry out some work, um, you know, it, it, it kind of, you need to tie up, otherwise it keeps falling down, the cloth's going to keep falling down. Even the lungi as well, for those of you who worn it, or if you're not wearing a lungi, then in ihram, you will know how it is. If you wear the ihram, you need to keep it tight, you need to make sure it doesn't fall down. Um, and, and it's a challenge for people going for hajj or umrah for the first time, of just wear that experience of wearing the ihram. How does it feel? And just making sure it doesn't fall off and keeping it tight. So it is an art to actually learning and practicing wearing the ihram in itself. And then those people who've not been for Hajj, they have this idea that how am I going to wear this for five days? All right. So you don't need to wear it for five days. You only need to wear it for three days. Because on the third day, on the eighth, on the ninth, on the tenth, you come out of Ihram and you're in your normal clothes. So you're only in Ihram for three days, not for five days. Okay, so I, I'm just hoping that makes it easier in some people's minds and changes and helps you to make a decision to go for Hajj, inshallah, when it's obligatory upon you. Allah make it easy for everybody. And put an end to this mutawif. Uh, there's actually a, uh, a Saudi um, legal law firm that's established um, a website for people to um, address their concerns and complaints, any issues that have happened because of Mutawif, etc. Um, they're going to put these together and they're going to file a legal case against Mutawif. So if you know anybody um, that has been for Hajj and has been um, inconvenienced and has any issues whatsoever, tell them to do file their complaints. So at least, um, you know, uh, some kind of justice can be meted out and uh, we can have a better service, inshallah, going forward. It's getting quite cold in here, isn't it? Yeah. See, it definitely is the coolest place to be. Uh, so, when he, whilst he was carrying the uh, stones, his uncle said to him that, look, you know, you're carrying these stones. It's getting a bit difficult for you. Why don't you tie the lower garment, tie it up here. So if you bring it up here, tie it around your neck. 
what would happen is you're not having to because sometimes if you're if, if you've got a lower garment on and you're picking things up in what with one hand you're holding your lower garment so you're holding on to that and you're holding on to that like you need both hands free so why don't you do this your lower garment tie it up over here so then you can your, your hands are free now what would happen is if you were to do that tie the lower garment higher up what would happen from the bottom it starts raising and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's lower garment, he thought, yeah, that's a good idea. He tied it up. This is in Bukhari and Muslim. So the lower garment raised. So much so that between his knees and the shin, it became exposed. We're not talking about the private area. We're talking about above the knees. Okay, and as we know, for a male, the private area is between the navel and the knees. Um, so that is something you can't expose in front of other people. Um, so some part of his upper thigh became exposed as soon as it became exposed he passed out he's gone gone flat and it says the hadith mentions that his eyes were just open to the heavens he just fell flat and after some time he gained consciousness and the first thing he was saying as soon as he gained consciousness, Izari, 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 where's my lower garment? Where's my lower garment? He was so conscious about covering his aura and his private area. And he covered it. And that was the first and the last time ever in the life of the Prophet wasallam that part of that organ was ever exposed. We're not talking about the private area itself. We're just talking about the upper thigh. So can you see how Allah protects his prophets? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him even prior to prophethood. Uh, there was one occasion actually when he was younger and one of his friends invited him to a kind of a festival. There's a lot of singing and dancing and all sorts of things happening. So yeah, yeah, I'll come along. So as they were going along, they sat down by a tree to rest. And the Prophet says, I fell asleep. And I'm totally knocked out. Until his friend went, he came back and everything was over and he woke up after it all finished. And this again was a divine intervention from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him from being part of such a gathering. Similarly over here, uh, this is in hadith of Bukhari and Muslim. Uh, he got up and he tied it really tightly and he said, no, I'm going to carry on carrying the stones as I am. Uh, because he didn't want the uh, aura to be exposed. Now, who was the architect of the Kaaba? We speak about the building of the Kaaba. Now, you can't just, these kind of projects, you can't just undertake. You can't just think, right, okay, let's start doing this and let's start doing that. Um, so, Ibn Ishaq says that there was a Coptic architect who lived in Mecca at the time. Coptic meaning he's from Egypt, um, Qipti. Uh, and he's the one who actually planned the whole planning of how the Kaaba should be redesigned so that it's much more um, sturdy, it withholds the elements um, and it remains for a long time. Um, and this is also the opinion of Ibn Hisham, Al-Tabari and Ibn Kathir as well, that there was a Coptic architect for the Kaaba. And um, other scholars like Hafiz Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, Imam al-Azraqi, Imam al-Faqihi, they say that there was a Roman by the name of Baqum. He is the one who designed the Kaaba. So there's two opinions. Either it's a Coptic or it's a Roman by the name of Baqum. Who was Baqum? Baqum was a Roman slave. He was on board that ship that was left abandoned at the port of Jeddah. So he was on that ship and um, 
he was an expert architect and a carpenter as well and that's what they needed and he was a slave of the Banu Umayyah um, and Imam al-Azraqi says later on this Bakum accepted Islam and he is the one who built the mimbar made out of wood for the Prophet in Medina Munawwara as well so that's, that's his opinion so it kind of he he's part of the Kaaba because the Kaaba needed a wooden structure first of all the roof the walls the stones and everything come afterwards but to make the actual structure they used a lot of wood uh, and he was an expert in that uh, and later on they say that he is the one who made the three-step pulpit for the Prophet I don't know if you've seen um, any replicas people have uh, the scholars of Sira have taken these narrations and tried to present a replica of how the uh, the, the the member of the Prophet would have looked and that's why you have um, the three-step member obviously ours is of I don't know what is it fake marble or real marble anyway so the wooden so to have a wooden member is a sunnah in itself many masjids you will see they have it wooden and then to have three steps is a sunnah is it in itself because that was the one that was built for the Prophet and there are certain drawings that are there again we can't get 100% accuracy but based on the narrations that we have available there are some works that have been done and maybe later on inshallah on another occasion um, or maybe when we come to that part of the seerah we can go into more detail I can possibly show you um, some images as well just to give you an idea of how it could have possibly looked um, Imam Zurqali rahmatullah says maybe both of them were part of the um, building or the planning um, because you've got the walls and then you've got the roof there was no roof so the roof was a whole new project in itself the Kaaba didn't have a roof so introducing a roof to a building like that would have been a whole new project in itself um, Bakum was actually a, a master builder it was something he was an expert in he comes to the people of Quraysh and he asks them a question we find this mentioned in the books of Sirah what kind of roof would you like and the Quraysh actually responded they said we want a flat roof okay we don't want a pointed roof we don't want any other type but we want a flat roof and thus today as well we see on the Kaaba there is a flat roof so originally when it was built by Adam salam, Ibrahim salam, there was no roof it was just an open structure so the roof comes in now uh, by the Quraysh building uh, when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was 35 years old now how were the responsibilities divided so the Quraysh the divi divided roles and responsibilities by lots now where would they draw lots whenever the Quraysh wanted to do something where would they go who remembers Darul Arqam is there, but remember, where, where, how are they making their decisions? So they're going in, they're in Makkah already, so where would they go? They go next to the Kaaba, they actually go inside the Kaaba. What was inside the Kaaba? Idol. Which idol? Hmm? Not Hubal. Okay, think of space. Okay, so Hubal was the greatest idol, and they had placed Hubal inside the Kaaba. Any major project they wanted to undertake, they would go to Hubal. And what they would do by Hubal is they would draw lots. 
and they do it in the presence of this idol thinking it's going to be blessed. So they started drawing lots, meaning who's going to be assigned which part of this project. Remember, they fought over trivial things. So this could have started off another war. So that's why they went there and they were right, we're going to draw lots. Um, so when they drew lots, what happened was the work on the eastern door uh, was given to the uh, Banu Abdul Manaf and Banu Zuhra. So they've been given work on the eastern door of the Kaaba. The black stone on the Rukna Yamani side, so you've got the black stone and the Rukna Yamani, the Yamani corner. It's called the Yamani corner because it points towards Yemen. That was given to the Banu Makhzum and the Banu Taim tribe. And then the back of the Kaaba on the western side of the Kaaba, that was given to the Banu Saham and the Banu Jum. On the side of the Hatim, you know Hatim, the semicircle, that side was given to Banu Abdul Dar, Banu Asad and Banu Adi. So like this, the roles and the responsibilities of who will be responsible uh, for which part of the side of the Kaaba, this is how it was distributed. Now it comes down to pulling down the old structure first. Before you can start building, we have to pull down what's already there. So they thought that they were really scared. Why do you think they were scared to pull down the Kaaba? So the snake was there, but something else. Yeah. Of course, it, it was very holy, but you know, you would, the fear would be there. One is because of its holiness, that's correct. Secondly, because of the snake. But something else, what was, there was something that was in everyone's mind. Everybody had seen and witnessed something huge. Yep. Okay, so that's when we spoke about Safa and Marwa and the idols. Um, they, they, act, they, did a, they committed an act of indecency in the Kaaba, but it was not, they didn't kind of attack the Kaaba in itself. Come on, guys. Yeah, let, 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 let the brother say it from this end. Not the treasure. I thought you got it there. Go on. Yes. By the way, his name is Muttalib. So Abdul Muttalib, like this. I think it's the only person I know with the name Muttalib. Yes, Abraha. What happened with Abraha? This, this event, everybody saw it. Abraha came to Mecca with the elephants. What was the intention? To tear down the Kaaba. What happened? They were destroyed. These birds came. Right, and they pelted them with the stones, and they were, the whole army was destroyed with the elephants. They were everyone was terrified by that incident, and it was so fresh in the people's mind. How long ago was it? It was when the Prophet was born. So then, how many years ago? Okay, 35 years, 36. So not long. So it's a fresh incident. Everybody knows about it. Everybody still talks about it. They still count their years. So this would be like. Year 35 after the incident of the elephant. Like that's how it was ingrained in people's minds. So because that was so fresh in their minds, they were so scared to pull down the Kaaba. They wanted to do it. The intention wasn't bad, but they were really, really terrified. Um, so we know about the snake that we, um, we said. Now the snake would come out every day. The snake would actually come out from the well. Remember the Kaaba was open at the top. It would come out every day, it would go into the wall of the Kaaba, and then it would, it would sit in the sun every single day. It would just sit there 
and people would know, people knew that there was a serpent that would live inside this. Um, and it happened, now this is, uh, this is not me saying this, this is mentioned in the books of Sirah. It also happened in those days where some people went towards the Kaaba with the intention of pulling it down and the serpent would come down and actually ate the whole person. And this happened a couple of times. So people were terrified uh, because of this as well. So the people gathered by the Maqam Ibrahim and they made a dua. And they said, Allahumma in kana laka fi hadmiha ridan fa'atimmahu wasjil anna hadha thu'ban. They made this dua. That, oh Allah, we want to rebuild this Kaaba. Oh Allah, if you are happy with us rebuilding this Kaaba, let us carry out with ease and take care of this serpent. Whilst they made this dua by the Maqam Ibrahim, they say a large bird came, massive bird comes, and it picks up the snake and it took it away. And from that day onwards, they didn't find any serpent or any snake inside the Kaaba. They took this as a divine approval. They thought Allah is happy with us and he wants us to carry out this action. So this is number one. Number two, Walid bin Mughira was the leader of this project and he's the leader of the Quraysh at the time. The Quraysh was still in fear. They still didn't have the courage, although they saw this sign, the serpent is gone now, but they still thought, what if something happens? Maybe the person who starts it off, he might become crippled. He might get leprosy. He, his arm might break. Something might happen to him. The earth might split up and swallow the individual. Um, so they were still very cautious and hesitant to break down the Kaaba. So Walid bin Mughira, he says, okay, I'm going to start. So he takes a pickaxe and he climbed the wall of the Kaaba and he says, Allahumma uh, la tuda, Allahumma illa la, Allahumma la nuridu illa al khayr. Oh Allah, we don't want to create, Allahumma la tura, meaning, oh Allah, we don't want to create terror in the hearts of people. We're not doing it to scare people. We're not destroying it so that people become frightened uh, by dismantling this Kaaba and people can think, oh no, what's happened? No, no, we don't want to do that. Our aim is only good. All we want to do, Allah, is to rebuild it. So he takes a pickaxe, he makes this dua and he starts to break it down stone by stone and he managed to take down one side, one wall of the Kaaba. The wall between the black stone and the Ruknul Yamani, he brings it down. Once he did that, the people said, stop, don't do anymore. Let's sleep on it. Tonight, we're going to sleep on it. And if Walid bin Mughira gets transformed into an animal or something, then we know that this is bad. We shouldn't do this. But if nothing happens to him, he's still alive. He doesn't die. He doesn't suffer with some kind of illness. His hands don't break off or something. Um, or he's, you know, a beast doesn't come and eat him up or something, then we know that it's fine. Uh, the night passed very peacefully. Nothing happened to Walid bin Mughira. They went checked. Are you okay? Everything's fine. They saw everything was okay. Uh, and everybody decided, okay, we're going to take part. Now, there was a group of people that took part in the dismantling of the Kaaba. Everybody else went and away. They went to Mina. They were not going to stay in Mecca. Probably something happens. They were frightened. So everybody went far away. 
And they started dismantling the Kaaba, slowly, 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 started dismantling the Kaaba. Look, nothing's happened, let's go for it. So they started taking away what was already there until they reached the foundation stones from the time of Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam. They saw them with their eyes. And uh, there was a Qurayshi man from amongst everybody. Once they got dismantled the whole Kaaba, there was a man who tried to pick up one of the foundation stones and take it out of the earth. So he tried really hard. As he pulled on it, the whole of Makkah shook. The whole Makkah shook and everybody felt this tremor. From which they realized that these stones are not to be removed. We must keep them where they are. They are part of the original foundation of the Kaaba. So they left them where they were. Now they started working on the Kaaba. Um, they had the wood, they had the stones, and they had the plan. And as they are building the Kaaba, they come to the area and the time where it's time to now replace the black stone onto the Kaaba. So everything was working very well. They drew lots and they divided the responsibilities uh, across the tribes. But now what's happened is everybody wants to be uh, selected and chosen to replace the black stone. The black stone they knew is a stone of honor. So every tribe wanted to be part of replacing the black stone onto the Kaaba. So the Banu Abd Manaf and Banu Zuhra, they claimed a right for it. Why? Because they were working on that wall. Remember we said different walls were given to different tribes. So because they were working on that particular wall, they said that we should be the ones who place the black stone in its place. The others said no. The Banu Taim, Banu Makhzum claimed it. And they said no, it's on our side. We're also working on that side as well. Okay. So if you're working on that side or that side, it falls on your side as well. So we're also working on that side. And the black stone is one of our corners as well. So we should do it. And this led to a very, very heated argument. And they had arguments, they had discussions, they had fights. So much so that every tribe, they swore to fight till death. We just spoke about the wars two sessions ago, how they managed to put an end to the Fijar wars. And now this issue led to such that they were actually willing, they, they, they took qasam and they swore that we will fight till we die, until we, get, we claim our right to place the stone in its place. Banu Abdu'l-Dar actually bought a bowl full of blood. They sacrificed an animal, poured the blood into this bowl, they bring this bowl by the Kaaba and they all ask their people, dip your hands in there. Dip your hands in there. And this was to show, look, we're dipping our hands in here, meaning we're going to fight till the final moment. We'll fight till death until we get and claim this right. So this is how far it had reached. Now, you might think, right, Blackstone, why would they fight so much over it? Let's understand what the Blackstone is, first of all. What is the black stone? The black stone is a stone of Jannah. Originally it wasn't black, it was white. Ashaddu bayadan min al-laban, the hadith says. It was more whiter than milk. There's another narration that says, Ashaddu bayadan min al more whiter than snow. You've seen how white snow is? Okay, you've seen milk, whiter than, that's how, that's how it was. And the hadith says that it's the sins of the people that have made it black. 
when people go uh, and, and, and they kiss it, it kind of absorbs your sins into it like a, like, 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 like a sponge. And this is what's made it black. So Jibreel brought this down from the heavens. When Ibrahim salam was doing his reconstruction of the Kaaba, at that time, Jibreel salam brought it down from the heavens and was placed on the Kaaba. And others would say, no, it was from the time of the beginning of times. Uh, so I've told you this hadith already. In another hadith, we find the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has said it's in Tirmidhi, inna ruqna wal maqam yaqutani min yaqutil jannah. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that the maqam Ibrahim and ruqn over here refers to al-hajar al-aswad. The black stone and the maqam Ibrahim, that, that, these are two stones. Where Ibrahim stood on to build the Kaaba, that's a stone. That's a stone that came from Jannah. And a ruqn over here is referring to al-hajar al-aswad. So these are two stones. The Prophet says, Inna ruqna wal maqam min jannah. That the maqam Ibrahim and the black stone, these are two rubies from the rubies of paradise. This precious stone, not a normal stone. This is a ruby stone. And then he went on to say, Allah has extinguished their shine and their radiance and their light. You see a precious stone and it shines. It's radiant, especially when it reflects light. So Allah has taken away the shine and the radiance. You can't see at the moment. You can't see it. Why? Because Allah has taken that power away at the moment. Uh, sorry. Uh, that's another hadith. The hadith of Tirmidhi says, if Allah hadn't taken away the radiance and the shine of these two stones, it would have lit up and made radiant the whole world. You would not need the sun, you would not need the moon, you would not need any of this artificial lighting, you would not need any light whatsoever in the world. No light would be needed in the world. Hadith of Tirmidhi, the light of Hajar al-Aswad, the black stone, and the Maqam Ibrahim would be so powerful, the whole world would be lit up. You would not need any lighting whatsoever. But Allah has taken that away. So in reality, these are very precious stones, rubies of Jannah. They are actual from Jannah and they will return to Jannah. At the moment, we, we just look at it, it's just a stone. It's not just a stone. Okay, and you see why these people were willing to fight to death, even though they might have not known all of these virtues. They knew there was something special about it. Maybe they didn't know all of these virtues that we know, but they knew it was special. And there's another hadith reported by Imam al-Bayhaqi in his Sunan. The Prophet says, if the people of Jahiliya, meaning the pagan Arabs who were committing idol worship, if they hadn't touched the black stone, then if a sick person would have gone, any sick person in the world would have gone to Mecca and just touched the stone, immediately you would be cured. That's, that's how powerful this stone is. From Allah, of course, we don't believe the stone does anything. Allah is the one who benefits, Allah is the one who harms. We believe this. Only Allah can give benefit, Allah can give shifa. But Allah has placed this effect in the stone 
where through Allah's permission in this world, like Zamzam for example, is very precious. And people drink Zamzam and they gain Shifa. People read Surah Al-Fatiha and they gain Shifa. The Hajar Al-Aswad as well. He carries this speciality. He says that if the people of Jahiliyyah hadn't touched it, that anyone touching it would have gained Shifa. In this hadith, it says that there is nothing from paradise in this world besides the Al-Hajar Al-Aswad. Um, of course, scholars will discuss on this because there are other things from Jannah in the world as well. For example, Riyadhul Jannah, the place between the, where the Prophet ﷺ is buried and his mimbar. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ tells us about the Mount of Uhud, that this is a mountain from Jannah. Uh, when he spoke about Uhud, the Mount Uhud in Medina Munawwara, very close to Masjid Nabawi, the Prophet ﷺ was very passionate about this mountain. And he said, this is a mountain, the mountain loves me and I love this mountain. Uh, and he will return to Jannah. In a hadith reported by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, he says, "Inna mashar rukn al-Yamani wa rukn al-Aswad yahutul khataya hutta." Imam Ahmad in his Musnad he says that the touching of rukn al-Yamani. So you've got the Kaaba. This is the Kaaba. Okay. This is the black stone in this corner over here. The corner before the black stone is called rukn al-Yamani. So if when you go to this corner, the cloth of the Kaaba is ripped a little bit. It's open. It's exposed. So you can go there and you can see the stone. You won't see the cloth there. The stone is exposed a little bit and you can go and touch it. And it's actually a sunnah to touch this part as well. Not to kiss it. Kissing is only on one side. But to touch the Rukn al-Yamani is a sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ if you can do it with ease. Hadith of Musnad Ahmad. Inna mashar Rukn al-Yamani wal Rukn al-Aswad yahuttu al-Khataya hutman. The hadith says that the touching of the Rukn al-Yamani and the touching of the Hajar al-Aswad will cause your sins to shed immensely, meaning all your sins will just fall off you. They'll just... You touch it and everything's gone. It wipes away your sins. This is the power Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the Rukn al-Yamani and also specifically the Hajar al-Aswad, the black stone. In the hadith of Tirmidhi, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Wallahu, wallahi, layaba'athannahu Allah yawm al-qiyamah. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Wallahi, Allah is going to resurrect the black stone on the day of judgment in front of all of the people. Lahu aynani yubsiru bihima. Allah will give it two eyes which it can see with. Wallisanun yantiqu bihi. And Allah will give the black stone a tongue and he will speak. Yashhadu ala... Man Everybody who came to Al-Hajar Al-Aswad and they made Istilam. Istilam means if you're close to it, you kiss it directly. You go to it and you kiss it. And if you can't kiss it, then you touch it and you kiss your hand. And if you can't do that, then from far, if the Hajar Al-Aswad is there, okay, you just go like this. Bismillah, Allahu Akbar, and you kiss your hand. Okay? This is all, all, all of this is Islam. Anybody, the hadith says, anybody who goes to Makkah and either kisses it directly, or for example, if you have a stick like the Prophet had a stick and he touched the black stone with the stick and he kissed the stick. This is Sunnah number two. There's a way of Islam. Istilam number one, the first, the best way of making Istilam. Now it's really difficult to, uh, obviously since COVID they've covered it up. But even prior to that, because the, the, the visa is now open for 
Umrah also most of the year round, uh, you wouldn't find people kind of think, I'm going to go at quiet time and it's going to be less. But he's busy all year round. Otherwise, this was the quietest time. They would not open from after Hajj. They wouldn't open for Umrah until two months almost. Two full months and they would open really late. So the people living there, for them it was Eid. And I've been there at times when it was like that as well. He had, when things hadn't picked up so much then, not as many people were going. And I remember there were certain times we would do tawaf. You'd go around and every round you'd kiss the black stone. You'd go to the black stone and you'd kiss it. There was no one pushing you, no rush, nothing whatsoever. You kiss the black stone, you go around second time, kiss the black stone. Each time, seven times you'd kiss the black stone. And then after some years, he started getting busy. So what they used to do every single day, at around 3.30, just before the Adhan of Salatul Asr, they used to have a systematic queue. So any ladies that were there, they say, shoot, shoot, go, go, it's Salah time, go. You go to your ladies section. And then they would make a systematic queue just for men. Okay. And the police would be there, no pushing. And you could stand in this queue and you could kiss the black stone and then go back to the queue again. The queue never used to be that long. Not many people used to know about it. And this would work very well. And as years went by, even during Hajj, they carried on doing this. As years went by, people found out about it more. The queue would become much more longer. Uh, at night time, they used to do this as well, around 12 o'clock, when they would clean the mataf area. So they have two or three times they clean the whole mataf. Um, it, it's something to see how this whole area is cleaned uh, two or three times a day. So they would do it then as well. But slowly, slowly, as the people have increased, more and more people are going, which is alhamdulillah a great thing. They don't do this anymore. Inshallah, if they introduce it again, would be great. Otherwise, you have to, it's, it's, it's a struggle. And the thing is, we shouldn't inconvenience anybody. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try as well. Uh, because there are so many blessings if you can't. So, num number one is you kiss it directly. If you can't do that, then you touch something on it and you kiss that. And if you can't do that from afar, you raise your hands towards it and then you kiss your hands. This is istilam. The hadith is saying on the day of resurrection, that stone, Allah is going to resurrect in front of all the people. Allah will give it two eyes. It will have a tongue to speak and then it will bear testimony for everyone who did istilam with sincerity. Anybody who went for Hajj or Umrah and they kissed it even from afar and they did it with sincerity for the sake of Allah, the black stone will be a testimony for you on the day of judgment. And this is something huge. This is something huge. Um, so this is why whenever we're there, we should make an effort. We should enjoy the process once we're going. Yes, it's hot. It is a lot of pushing and shoving and everything. But at that time, there's a specific dua. You know, we spoke about the, the covenant that everybody made to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before we even came into this world. Before we came into this world, when we were in the world of souls, Allah created Adam alayhi salam and from the back of Adam alayhi salam, Allah pulled out all the souls, mine, yours, everybody, everybody till the day of judgment. And Allah asked them one question, Am I not your Lord? And everybody responded. Everybody, Muslim, non-Muslim, male, female, young, old, people of the past, people of now, people of the future, everybody responded, Bala, of course you are our Lord. Everybody, even people who don't believe in God. At that time, Allah addressed all of the souls and everybody responded by saying, yes, you are our Lord. When we come into this world, we're basically now fulfilling that covenant we made with Allah. 
That, at that time, we made an agreement and we said, yes, we believe you as, your, as, as, as our Lord. Now we have to live our life to prove it. And this is why when we go into the grave, the first thing will be asked, who is your Lord? Because that's, that's the first promise we made. That covenant, the scholars mentioned that covenant was taken and it's been placed in the black stone. This agreement that you've made, it's been placed in there. This is why the sunnah is when you would make the tawaf and you press Ruknul Yamani, and when you come to Al Hajarul Aswad, this is why over here you should say this Allahumma imanam bik, wa tasdiqam bi kitabik, wa wafa'am bi ahadik, wa wafa'am bi ahadik. And you kiss your hands and you carry on. It's a very ecstatic and emotional moment that you should have when you get here. Because from Ruknul Yamani, you should be reading This is the dua. Rest of the round, you can read whatever you want. But from Ruknul Yamani, Oh Allah, grant us good in this world. Grant us good in the hereafter. Uh, now safeguard is from the fire of hell. But when you come to the Al Hajarul Aswad, you say this Allahumma imanam bik. Oh Allah, with iman and faith in you. Oh Allah, I testify uh, your Quran and everything in there to be true. And fulfilling the covenant I made to you. Remember the covenant? Because Allah has placed it in here. You're saying and repeating it here. And that black stone, remember, it's hearing you. And on the day of judgment, the hadith is saying, I'm not saying, hadith of Tirmidhi, it'll be resurrected and it will bear testimony for everybody that did istilam with haqq. What is istilam with haqq? You do it in the way the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did. Like this, Allahumma imanam bik, wa tasdiqam bi kitabik, wa wafa'am bi ahdik, wa tiba'am bi sunnati nabiyika Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Allah following the footsteps of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Bismillahi Allahu Akbar. And then you kiss your hands. That is a whole different experience altogether. And then you continue on to the next round until you get there again and again you renew that covenant that was made with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hadith of Bukhari and Muslim the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sorry Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu when he came to the Kaaba and he was in front of the black stone he was there he spoke to the black stone it's in Bukhari and Muslim he says inni a'lam annaka hajar I know very well you're only a stone. You cannot harm, you cannot benefit. If I hadn't seen the Prophet kissing you, I would have not kissed you. Now remember, Umar was very particular. He was very firm. And at that time, you know, in Makkah to Mukarramah, there was already, they've been in idol worship. The last thing you want is for people to go down that route again. So he was making things very clear. Even in Palestine, when he asked Kaab Ahbar where to place the Musalla, and he said, put it behind the rock. And he told him, what, what's wrong with you? Okay, we, we're not praying towards the rock. That's gone now. That's not the Qibla anymore. It was the Qibla before, not anymore. Our Qibla is the Kaaba. This is why he insists to make the Musalla at the front, where it is now, uh, where, where we generally pray from now. So over here as well, we see he's addressing the black stone. He's saying, look, you're only a stone. And if I hadn't seen the Prophet ﷺ kissing you, I would have not kissed you. So although the Quraysh did not know all of these virtues, which I've just shared with you now, and then these are some of the virtues of Al-Hajar Al-Aswad. There will be others as well. They did know that it was a very precious stone. 
it was divine, it was holy, and whoever was chosen to place that on, they would have a, a great honor. So this is, can you, do you understand now why they were willing to fight to death just to place that stone in its place? Now, Abu Umayyah bin Mughira, he made a proposal. Now there was a risk of a war breaking out and they, they'd had enough of wars already. This was very, very serious. Such a great project, everything's going really well and all, all of a sudden everyone's fell out with each other. No one wants to talk to each other. They're swearing at each other, they're cussing each other, they want to fight and they, 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 they've got this bowl of blood and they're dipping their hands in there saying we're going to kill you guys. We're going to fight till death. Why? Because I want to put that black stone in its place. So it was very tense. For four or five days, there was no construction work. Everything just went on a halt. Four or five days go by. There's no work. Why? Because everyone's really angry with each other. Situation's very, very tense. The father of Ummu Salama, who later on marries the Prophet his name was Abu Umayyah, he stood up. And he said, okay, I'm going to give a proposal. He says, the Banu Shayba gate over there, that's the Banu Shayba gate. He goes, why don't you do this? The next person who enters from the Banu Shayba gate, why don't you agree to make that person your arbitrator? What do you think of my idea? The next person to walk in from that Banu Shayba gate, let him decide amongst you like the way forward. And everyone thought, you know what, that's such a cool idea. That's a really good idea. Everything had heated up, it was so tense. But that's not a bad idea. We, everyone kind of agreed. They thought, you know what? That sounds quite good. Yeah, we all agree. Yeah, everyone agrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone agreed. Everybody agreed. And I said, yeah, that sounds really, really fair. The next, now, now just, just imagine this. Just imagine you're there. And just think, like, all eyes would be on that door. Because it's, it's a series, you want to know who's going to come through there. And everyone's looking, every single person. This has been so tense, four or five days, no work has taken place. That bloody bowl is still there, right? And they had just swore that we're going to fight till death. And now someone's proposed an idea. So on one side, they're still heated up. On the other side, they're thinking, you know, this might work out in our favor. They're looking towards that door. You know, somebody gives a really nice adhan and everyone's like looking for who could that be? Let's see who walks out. Okay, so similarly, you're kind of looking at the door and lo and behold, who was it? It was the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next person to enter the haram on that day was none other than our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa As soon as he entered, every single person in one voice, they said, Radina, we're so pleased with him. He is the trustworthy one amongst us. We are so happy that he walked in and nobody else. Whatever he says, we're happy to go ahead with. This is the most trustworthy person. We are so happy and pleased. Whatever he decides, we will go ahead with. And remember, this is prior to prophethood. Okay, he's not even become a prophet yet. But people recognized him for his merit. Now look at the wisdom of the Prophet even prior to prophethood. Imagine how great his wisdom was after prophethood. This is why every hadith that you hear is full of wisdom. You might not get it. You might not understand it. It might not make sense to you. That doesn't mean there's no wisdom in it. Because he's the Prophet of Allah. Full of wisdom. There has never been a person more wise, more understanding, more relatable, who cares for you.
who understands you better than the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Azizun alayhi ma'anitum, harisun alaykum bil mu'minina ra'ufur rahim. Quran says, you know what causes you pain causes him a lot of pain. When you're in pain, it really hurts him. He doesn't want to see you in any kind of pain. When you're down, he feels down. Harisun alaykum. He inside him, he wants so much good for you, more than you want for yourself. So much so, he wanted so much good for people that he was about to like over, he overworked himself. Allah had to send the Quran down. Oh Muhammad, calm down. You're, you're going to overwork yourself. You have so much concern. You're so passionate about the well-being of other people that you're going to tire yourself out. And you might just destroy yourself. And you might not exist anymore. That's how much he passion and care he had for the people. So the Prophet wasallam he listened. He looked at the situation. And everybody was willing to do whatever he said. And so he goes, okay, bring me a piece of cloth. So they bought him, so imagine this piece of cloth. So they bring him a piece of cloth. He goes, right, okay. There's lots of tribes where we can split these tribes up and the main leaders of the tribes are four. There's four groups that they made. Do you remember? This is why we, went, we mentioned all of this before. They made four groups, okay? The leader of each group and each tribe hold one side of the cloth. So one will be here. One of them will hold this one. Another one will hold that one. The other one will hold that one. The Prophet wasallam then takes the Al-Hajarul Aswad. Okay, he lifts it up and he places it in the middle. Okay? Now, they need to take it to the Kaaba. The Kaaba is over there. He says, now all four of you carry it and hold it. Can you see how he resolved such an issue that was going to start up a war and how he just ended it through one, one line, one sentence. And this was prior to prophethood. Imagine how much blessing there is in every hadith and sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, and it's enough to end the wars of the world. It's sufficient. It will, if we abide by it. So they, 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 they carry it and like this, everyone's happy. Everyone's pleased because they've all got a share in it now. And they take it to the Kaaba and the Prophet wasallam, then took it himself, okay, and he placed it onto the Kaaba. And everybody agreed with it. Because he, he did it in such a beautiful way. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this was the replacing of the black stone onto the Kaaba. And as soon as this was done, the construction continued. It, it halted for a few days. It continued now. Now shaitan, he tries, whenever he has an opportunity, shaitan's not going to give in. Shaitan is, is, is the most well-trained professional He's been going since the time of Adam salam, and he's still now and he knows all the tricks of the trade. So he came as well at this time. He came in the form of a saintly man. So this old saintly man, everybody thinks this is some pious person. And he took, he, had, he was carrying a stone as well. Now when they placed the black stone onto the Kaaba, it needed support. So like the black stone has been put there, but then to support it, you need to put some stones around it just to keep to, for it to fit in to the exact place where it is. So they needed like a, one or two stones. So this shaitan comes in the, in, in, the, in, in the guise of a saintly man and he's carrying a stone. Any opportunity, he just squeezes in. So he came in and he said that, um, here, you need, a, you need a stone to support the black stone. Here, take this. 
Right? It's a good opportunity for him because everyone's going to come to this Kaaba. Okay? And he wants to destroy people's worship. So he wanted one of his stones to come in there. So he said here, uh, add this stone to support the black stone. Abbas, uh, who becomes radiallahu anhu, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he, he, he goes, hey, go away you. He stopped him from coming forward and he got another stone and gave it to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to place. In another narration it says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam responded to this so-called saintly man who was the devil disguised and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, innahu laysa yabni ma'ana fil bayt illa minna. Nobody from beside the queen, we don't know who you are, you are, you are a part of this project. Only the people who've been selected will be part of this project. You're a foreigner, you're a stranger, we don't know who you are, get lost from here, you can't do this. This infuriated the old man who was shaitan so much, he's getting, getting really angry. First of all, Abbas told him, radiallahu anhu, told him to get away. The Prophet said, look, you're not from this tribe, you're not from our people. There's a select committee dealing with the Kaaba project, you're not part of it, therefore, you don't have any say in what goes where. And then he didn't give in. Remember, Shaitan doesn't give in. So then Shaitan addressed the Quraysh as an old man, saintly man, so-called. And he said, I wonder at these wise and honorable men. I wonder at these wise and honorable men, how can they rely on a young man to make such a big decision? He's trying to twist the people's minds. And you are all old seniors and you've let a young man who's only, how old was he? 35. Okay, other people were much older. So you let such a young man make such a big decision and you consider him your leader in such a big task. And no one listened to him. He carried on screaming for a bit and nobody listened to him, which made him even more frustrated and even more angrier. Now, what were the prominent features of the new structure? How was it different? Because it wasn't the same. The old one I told you, Right, it was quite low. Um, I told you about so. The first thing is the way it was different is remember, they were told to use only pure wealth. Now, their pure wealth ran out, and they left a stretch of six cubits. We don't use cubits anymore, do we? What do we say? Arm's length. Okay, um, that got left out. So, the area where we have the semicircle, so if imagine again, this is the Java. You've got the semicircle, so they their money ran out. So they built up to here, right? But then they didn't have any money left, halal money, to carry on the construction because the, the Kaaba would have continued like this. Okay, not exactly um, a, a square, but it would have kind of been like an odd trapezium shape. It would have been kind of irregular rectangular shape because not all of the sides of the Kaaba are equal. Even now it looks like a cube, but they're not exactly equal. Um, so that was left open and instead what they did was they made a semicircle around it and what we see now this is what the Quraysh did so the way you see it now this is how it was done at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of course this work, work after it we'll speak about that inshallah um, so but th what they did was they put like stones in those areas and then made a little wall around it um, and made that semicircle part there and they called it Hijr. Um, Hijr means stones. And uh, Hatim as well. Um, so the original Kaaba, which they had from previous, 
was 9 cubits high. They made it 18 cubits high, so double. So it's, it's going up 9 arms length, and they made it 18, they made it double. Um, inside, be, remember before there was no roof. So inside you didn't need anything. So now they want to make a roof. So inside they, they made two rows of pillars, three, three pillars and so six pillars were placed inside the Kaaba. Um, and remember the original Kaaba was roofless. So the Quraysh built a roof on the Kaaba as well. It was a flat roof. Now inside the Kaaba also, um, they built a wooden staircase, which even now there is a staircase inside the Kaaba. So when, imagine again, imagine this is the Kaaba, this is the Hajar al-Aswad, um, and the Hatim starts over here. Hatim area starts over here. So on this side, in this corner of the Kaaba, there's a staircase. It's still there now as well. Um, yeah, it's about one and a half meters wide, two and a half meters long. Yeah, so the, if you go in from there, you go inside, there's a staircase, and from there you can get to the roof of the Kaaba. Otherwise, you probably think, how do people get up there? You must have seen the videos uh, a few weeks, weeks ago where there were them robot hoovers on top of the uh, Kaaba doing the cleaning. Okay, so there's a staircase inside. So the, the Quraysh were the first to actually build a staircase inside in that same place uh, during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he was 35 years old. And um, inside the, the an, another thing was the roof uh, was there and the columns, they decorated the columns. Um, and inside they also placed um, images of prophets um, that they, like Ibrahim alayhi salam, whatever portraits or whatever they wanted to make. Um, images of angels. Um, remember the, the, the mushrikeen used to believe that angels are Allah's daughters. The Quran speaks about it. And it, it's strange because they would bury their daughters alive, right? But then say, angels are Allah's daughters. And Allah speaks about this in the Quran. Allah says what? You want boys and you're giving the girls to Allah. Because this is such an idiotic distribution. Allah says, right, where's your sense here? You want, you want only boys. You don't want any girls. You want boys. And then you say, Allah's got daughters. Okay. Allah says, this is strange. And the Quran speaks about it in Surah Al-Najm. So, they also made the, uh, the door of the Kaaba. They made it, they raised it high above the ground. So one reason was to prevent the rain. But also remember, they had treasure inside. So they didn't want people accessing that, nothing to be stolen. And number three, they wanted to have control. That even only those people who we allow would go inside. And if we don't want anyone to go in, they can't just enter into the Kaaba. And then they had a water draining system. Remember, the Kaaba did not have a roof before. So there was no need for this. But now there's a roof for the Kaaba. So again, on this side, so if this is Hajar al-Aswad, you go round. If this is the Hatim, on the Kaaba over here, you've got something called the Mizab al-Rahma, uh, a water draining system. So again, this was put there by the Quraysh for the first time, because now we have a roof. And remember, they, when, when, when Baqum asked them, the Roman slave asked them, what kind of roof shall I build? They said, we want you to make a flat roof. You've got a flat roof. I mean, how, how's the water going to kind of 
it's not, it's not going to fall off. So it, the water kind of goes into this and this is where it drains from, if it was to rain. Um, they also put a covering on the Kaaba as well. Um, so at that time they put a striped Yemeni cloth. So they had this huge Yemeni cloth which, was, which had stripes. Yemen was known for its cloth. Um, and they placed this over it. And prior to this, they were using white Coptic sheets anyway from Egypt. Um, so now this time they have put on um, this striped Yemeni cloth. Later on, they put coverings of silk as well over it. So this kind of changed. It was not, there was no fixed color that went on there. It wasn't like black like it is now. They, they put whatever color they had. White was used for a long time as well. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, during his lifetime, he expressed a wish and a desire. He ﷺ wasn't actually comfortable with the new structure that the Quraysh had built. He was never comfortable with it. Why? Number one, because it was smaller than the original Kaaba. The Kaaba from the time of Ibrahim ﷺ was larger in size, wasn't it? The Hatim okay, was included. So that was one of the reasons the Prophet ﷺ wasn't totally comfortable because he, he had this desire that, oh, we wish you know, we could have the actual Kaaba as it was originally. So that's number one. Number two, uh, now the Quraysh have made only one door to the Kaaba. Before the Kaaba had two doors, one to go in and one to come out, opposite each other, and they were ground level. And now there's only one door in there. And um, the third thing that the Quraysh had done is instead of the door of the Kaaba being ground level, which makes it e easy for access, they've raised it up now. That means it's very controlled. Only a select few people can enter into the Kaaba. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam wasn't um, comfortable with this new structure of the Kaaba. And he wanted to, he had this desire to rebuild the Kaaba on the same foundations uh, of Ibrahim He expressed the desire, but he didn't proceed to carrying it out. Why? To prevent a strife, to prevent fitna, and to prevent um, just trouble. This is one of the main reasons why the Prophet even though he wanted to do it, it was something that you know made him feel uncomfortable inside but he looked at the bigger picture there's a hadith where he tells Aisha so he's speaking to Aisha radiallahu anha narrated by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says if your people if your qawm meaning the Quraysh they had not just recently left the jahiliyyah if they weren't new Muslims I'm worried that if I was to take down the Kaaba now, maybe it'll cause some kind of fitna. They're going to think, what is he doing? What is he doing? Why is he, why is he pulling down the Kaaba? Our, our forefathers just rebuilt it not so long ago. Why is he pulling it down? Why is he making changes? What kind, like, is this Islam where you just have one thing one day, then changes the other day? Like, what's going on? If I wasn't worried about their faith being so weak right now, I would have... I would have included the wall, meaning the Hatim, into the Kaaba, and I would have joined the door of the Kaaba to the earth. 
This is a hadith related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. There are many hadith to this nature and some have more detail than others. Another hadith in Bukhari, Ya Aisha, O Aisha, Lawla anna qawmukil hadithu ahdim bijahiliyya, la amardu bil bayt fahudima. If your people hadn't just recently accepted Islam, I would have told people to go and dismantle the Kaaba. And I would have entered into the Kaaba that which was taken out, meaning the Hatim area which has been taken out of the Kaaba, I would have included it into the Kaaba and I would have made the doors uh, to the earth. And I would make two doors. At the moment, there's only one door of the Kaaba. I would make two doors. Baban Sharqiyan wa Baban Gharbiyan. An eastern gate and a western door. So you go in from one and you go out of the other. This is in Bukhari. And a hadith of Muslim, the Prophet sallallahu says, so scholars have said this is another reason why the Prophet had this desire to dismantle the Kaaba. He says, I want to, all that treasure that's being stored inside the Kaaba, everyone's bringing some, because I want to spend it all in the path of Allah. What's the use of it being in there? You know, we don't have this concept of just gathering the wealth, what for? So I want to spend it in the path of Allah. And another hadith in Sahih Muslim of why the Prophet didn't end up doing it. So there's two reasons why he didn't do it. Number one, Fear of fitna. When, you, when, when, the, when the level of understanding of people is not to a certain level, it's not reached that level where they'll be able to grasp and understand. It will cause more problems and more issues than benefit. At that time, it's better to leave something, not something that's obligatory, that's different. Not even something that's sunnah. We're talking about things which are maybe mustahab, something that's better. You get more reward for it. But then there's another alternative as well. In those scenarios, it's better to leave it rather than causing a dispute because people don't know. They're not ready for it yet. And it's going to cause more harm. There's going to be more trouble. So the Prophet wasallam. there's two reasons why he didn't carry out this Kaaba project during his lifetime. Number one, fear of fitna. And number two, hadith of Sahih Muslim, I don't have enough money to do it. It's, it's a big project, it's going to cost a lot of money. We don't have enough sufficient funds to dismantle the whole thing and then build it all over again. Um, so this is in Sahih Muslim. And Imam Bukhari has actually got a chapter on this. Those of you who are familiar with the Sahih of Imam al-Bukhari, the main feature of Sahih al-Bukhari are the chapter headings. Uh, and it said, Fiqh al-Bukhari fi tarajumihi. The understanding uh, and the jurisprudence of Imam al-Bukhari really comes through, through his chapter headings. So it's not like a normal book. Bukhari isn't a book that anybody just picks up and starts reading. Okay, it's very different. Yes, Imam Muslim in his Sahih, what he has done, that he has systematically got all of the chapters so he starts off with you know like other books start off with iman and then with tahara and then with salah and then fasting and it's in order what he's done is all of the authentic narrations that he had he put them all in one place and there's so many narrations in muslim there are many 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 narrations on one topic okay everything he had on salah he's bought he's just put it all there in one place bukhari doesn't work like that bukhari is very very different bukhari what he does he brings a chapter heading and then he brings a hadith and many a times you think what's this hadith got to do with this heading 
Like you, you, apparently, you might not even see the link. And you have to sit there and you have to work it out. And that's what he wants you to do. He challenges your intellect. So right, there is no hadith in there that's out of place. He's put everything in the right place, but it's a challenge. It's an encyclopedia. It's, it's, it's a challenging book. So it's not something that goes in order necessarily, like the other books of hadith or fiqh. He has focused on this. So he's got a bab, he's got a chapter. Babu man taraka ba'd al-ikhtiyar Beautiful. He's got a chapter that says, this is the chapter regarding those people who leave out certain things, who leave out a better action, a better action for fear of people's low understanding because of them slipping into something that could be much worse. And this is, this is where he brings this hadith about the Kaaba. You think, well, what's the Kaaba got to do with this? So he's bought this bab, and then he brings this particular hadith that I've just shared with you, how the Prophet wasallam, he, although he wanted to do it, he didn't do it. And he said, and this is the principle that we learn, we learn. We had an incident here in this masjid, I'll, I'll share with you, just to give you an idea. A few years ago, it was Ramadan. And in Ramadan, we have um, uh, Witr Salah. And that's the only time in the year where we have Witr Salah that's done uh, with Jama'ah. So during the last 10 days of Ramadan, um, what happens is we have Qiyamul Layl, we have Tahajjud as well. And people should pray their own. But in this masjid, we have Tahajjud, um, collective Tahajjud as well. There's Jama'ah for Qiyamul Layl. So we know that the sunnah or the better way of doing witr, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, The hadith says that make witr your final salah of the night. This is the better way of doing it. There were many sahaba who would pray after Isha. They would pray immediately. But the sunnah way, the better way of doing it was to you do your Isha. And if you're doing taraweeh, you do taraweeh. And then you do your tahajjud whenever you do it, like they have in Haramain in the last 10 days. And then they have witr salah. This is the preferred way of doing it. So at the masjid, we discussed it with a few people. And um, we thought, yeah, that's good. It's something preferable to do. It's rewarding. Um, let's introduce it. Let's introduce it. So we introduced it at the masjid. And it didn't go down well. Um, remember, it's not something that's obligatory and it's not an emphasized sunnah. It's better. You can pray with her early, you can pray late. But what we realize at the time is like people don't know. People don't know about this being mustahab. And rather than it bringing benefit, people were starting arguing, people were screaming, people were shouting. It was Ramadan. The atmosphere of Ramadan was just got spoiled. And people were grabbing people to a side and saying, what are you doing? What about my waiter? I need to go. I need to go to work. I can't stay till Tahajjud. I'm not going to be here. I want to pray my waiter. Whereas people could have gone home and prayed their own individual waiter like they do the whole of the year. But how can you explain that to 300, 400 people? You can't. And that's where you learn through your mistakes. And you realize, understanding this chapter of Imam al-Bukhari, rahmatullah And Sometimes certain individuals don't get this. They think, well, if it's right, why aren't we doing it? If that's the better way of doing it, why aren't we doing it? We should be doing that. It doesn't always work like that. When you're working with a community, it doesn't always work like that. 
if there is another option and there's another alternative which is working for everybody and it's not wrong it's not wrong it's allowed it's permissible right stick to it later on one and, and then in the background what you have to now do is now you have to work on educating the people once you've educated the people and then you understand that now if we were to do this now nobody's going to turn around and say what are you doing because everybody knows or most people understand this then it's not a problem uh, so this is something uh, we can relate to and there's a principle in fiqh as well that uh, it's better to ward off evil than to try and bring some kind of benefit when you've got this kind of balance okay this is the islamic principle that the uh, fuqaha use so although the prophet sallallahu didn't build the kaaba himself he did give a hint so he didn't he didn't just leave it he gave a hint to other people and he told them that look if ever a time comes in your life i won't be around but in your life if a time comes that you've got sufficient funds and people are well educated you don't fear that people are going to turn around and say what are you doing then it would be better to rebuild it he left that foundation and he went as far to say again this is the hadith of sahih muslim he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went as far to say to Aisha radiallahu anha فَإِنْ بَدَى لِقَوْمِكِ مِنْ بَعْدِ أَنْ يَبْنُوهُ فَهَلُمِّي لِأُرِيكِهِ مَا تَرَكُوا مِنْهُ O Aisha, if ever it happens that your people, after my time, if they kind of come round to the idea of rebuilding it, come with me, let me come, and, come here, come here Aisha, let's go. And he took Aisha and says, look, this is... If ever after my demise in your time, people want to rebuild it and they're, they're ready to do it, then let me show you what they need to do. And he actually showed, he goes, look, this part was left out by the Quraysh. This is supposed to be included. Don't do it now because people are not ready. But if ever, many, many years later, okay, I'm not around, but you'll be around. At least I've told you so you can do it. Now, after the Prophet ﷺ passes away, Aisha radiallahu anha had a nephew and the nephew's name is Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu. How long do we have left? 22. Oh wow. So Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he was in Makkatul Mukarramah. He refused to give a pledge to Yazid bin Muawiyah. Yazid bin Muawiyah is in Asham. He's become the Amir al Mu'mineen, so to say. Abdullah bin Zubair says, I'm not going to give my pledge to him. I'm going to be in Makkah. So Yazid sends an armed force uh, under Hussein bin Numair to Makkatul Mukarramah. They launched an attack onto Makkatul Mukarramah and they forced Abdullah bin Zubair uh, and his people to set up tents inside the Haram, inside Masjidul Haram. And Hussein bin Numair, he laid a siege to the whole of the Haram and they, were, they had massive catapults and they were hurling stones inside uh, to attack Abdullah bin Zubair. And some of these stones, they actually struck and damaged the structure of the Kaaba. And whilst they were in these tents, obviously they needed campfires as well. One of the tents and the camps caught fire and that fire spread and he burned the cloth of the Kaaba. So one is the stones that came hurling down, damaged the structure of the Kaaba, and the fire also caused the Kaaba to be burnt as well. And it became so weak that the precious wood that we spoke about, that started corroding as well. A pigeon would come and sit on the Kaaba and the rocks would start crumbling down. That's how weak it actually became. And this 
tragic event took place on Saturday, the 3rd of Rabi al Awwal, 64 years after Hijrah. Just to give you context and idea, 64 years uh, after the Hijrah. This terrified the people of Makkah. Uh, and some days later, Yazid, he died. So on 14th of Rabi al Awwal, he died. And the news of his death reached Makkah al Mukarramah um, 27 days later. Remember, news would take longer to travel in those days. 27 days later, the news reaches him. Since Yazid was now dead, his chief, commander-in-chief, Hussein bin Numer, decides to retreat now, and he leaves Makkah, and the people are still there. Abdullah bin Zubair, radiallahu anhu, intentionally, he left the structure of the Kaaba in the sorry and the sad state it was. Why? Because now it came time for Hajj. When people came for Hajj, they saw the condition that it was in, and he wanted to basically address it. Shall we rebuild it? And said, yes, we should rebuild it. And we'll continue from here what goes on. Next two weeks, we won't be having a session, inshallah. Next for two weeks, we won't. And then three weeks from now, inshallah, we will continue with this.